Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Peter Muning, who is a professor at Columbia University's Department of Health Policy and Management. He uses randomized controlled trials, RCTs, and other methods to study the social determinants of health from a health policy perspective. His work spans broad areas of non-medical health policy, linking RCTs with cost-effectiveness analyses to determine the best mix of social policies for optimizing population health. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, Gil. Absolutely, yeah. So I want to start with one of your earlier papers um, entitled, Considering Whether Medicaid is Worth the Cost, Revisiting the Oregon Health Study. Um, So the Oregon Health Study was an experiment in which uninsured participants were randomized to either apply for Medicaid or stay with their current care, right? Right. Um, and so what did you find um, by, by going back into it and, and looking at the data? Well, so uh, one piece of what we did was, you know, in the in the original um, Oregon Medicaid study, uh, there was a lot of controversy because they found that when people were randomly assigned to receive Medicaid, yeah. They were much more likely to be diagnosed with, uh, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, you know, diabetes. Uh, but they were um, they were not um, found to have any impact associated with having a, uh, a treatment for their disease. So, in other words, despite these diagnoses. Uh, the blood sugar and the blood pressure and the um, blood cholesterol levels didn't really yeah. decline. Yeah, so th- uh, so there was a concentration of hypertension, diabetes in the group that applied for Medicaid? It was a little bit lower than average. It was lower than they expected. Uh, and that was part of the problem. And that's uh. really where uh, the crux of the problem with the study came in is that, you know, because they had a lower prevalence than the researchers expected, uh, this statistical power, which is the number of people that you need to enroll in the study, was weak. You know, okay. You, if you if you're studying a very sick population and you're giving them medications, you you know you would expect to see big effects. But if you're right. studying a population, you know, that's pretty healthy, you don't see these big effects. So that was the big controversy. And uh, the politicians jumped on it. You know, they said, well, you know, look, Medicaid isn't doing anything for anybody. So we should get rid of the program. (laughs) 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 Right. So uh, so what we tried to do is we tried to fix that problem uh, by using a combined test on one of Columbia's supercomputers that would that would uh, look at look at changes across all of these three measures, and and what that 
you know, effectively does is it increases the power of your test. It, 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 it's kind of like adding participants to your study. Mm -hmm. And we found that even with this uh, added power, there wasn't really that much of an impact on these three measures. But nevertheless, yeah. just having health insurance uh, had all of these other beneficial effects on your psychological well-being, and that alone paid for the health insurance. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that that's so interesting. So if I, from, from my own understanding, Peter, so when you look at the, uh, the, the two groups, uh, the ones in the Medicaid program and the ones who are not, uh, there isn't enough statistical power to make any conclusions. Um, you know, hypertension, uh, cholesterol, and diabetes, these three conditions uh, specifically, right? Correct. And, and so we can't really conclude anything. And, you know, politicians can spin it whatever way they want uh, to, to make uh, the, right. the decisions. <laughs> uh, but, but more importantly, uh, if I understand this correctly, what you're saying is that just the idea that you have a, a safety net, you have insurance, uh, improved, um, improved welfare and improved general health of that population. And you can actually put a number to it, some, some kind of an economic benefit number. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, depression is pretty prevalent in, in the U.S. population, and the problem is getting worse over time. And there's this hypothesis that one of the reasons why things are really going uh, downhill in America is, is because uh, the well-being of Americans are declining. And, and that well-being is declining in part because, you know, uh, these traditional high-paying jobs with health insurance are no longer available. Uh, so yes. the standard of living is declining and people are getting more depressed. And, and we're trying to fix it with policies like Medicaid uh, and with policies like the earned income tax credit and things like this. Hmm. Uh, and then the big question is, you know, obviously these things are not going to replace union jobs at Ford that we lost, but do they help? And the answer seems to be yes. Uh, hmm. So what we're, what we're seeing is, is increases in well-being. And, and the, other, the other thing about uh, the... Oregon health insurance plan that's sort of interesting, the study that's sort of interesting is that um, it really relieved, relieved people's anxiety. So there was, mm -hmm. a, there was a qualitative piece to the study as well. And, yeah. and uh, in the qualitative piece, all sorts of things came out. Like people, would, people were saying, you know, uh, it's funny, I broke, I broke an arm when I was uninsured and I couldn't go to the emergency room and I broke an arm again this time when I did have insurance and I could. And so um, my my first bone wasn't set properly and I was in a lot of pain. And this time mm -hmm. I was treated properly. So that, mm. that doesn't show up in the study, but it shows up in the person's well-being. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, th this is a such an important thing. You know, one of my uh, pet peeves is that uh, both the providers and payers seem to treat mental health uh, completely uh, segmented from physical health. And, you know, I think there is enough data that shows that, you know, mental health and physical health are intimately connected. Mm -hmm. And unless you can treat the patient, uh, you know, uh, both of these conditions uh, together, uh, you're never going to solve the problem. I mean, you can, you know, you can uh, push some some part of your uh, payment scheme to another payer, uh, and you can play those games. Uh, but from the patient's perspective, the problem is never going to be solved, right? This is kind of a similar thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And and as you said, it's really a two-way street. Uh, you know, if you if you have a physical illness, um, especially one that you can't seek medical care for, that's going to be a big stressor in your life and is going to, you know, lead to mental illness. Uh, conversely, um, mental illness will also impact your physical health. And um, there's really, really interesting literature on this uh, mm -hmm. that shows that uh, when you when you're depressed, when you're anxious, um, there is something called oxidative stress that happens when you have psychological stress. 
Yeah. And um, that increases the rate of aging in your body. So Correct. at the end of the day, you have a wide array, array of, uh, of chronic disease coming out of mental illness. Yeah. And, you know, oxidative stress in the brain uh, is implicated for, you know, many of the um, degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and, you know, those types of diseases, too. Yes, that's uh, in fact, we're doing a study on that now. Um, uh, we're doing a randomized controlled trial that looks at, uh, you know, unemployed uh, public recipients of public housing. And the idea is to provide, you know, huge supplements for for them if they find a job, you know, as an incentive for finding a job. But we're really in the first stage of the randomized trial in the early stages, they found that um, people weren't really, even though they were offered this money, they weren't really able to go and get these jobs. Mm. And part of the reason was because the psychological stress uh, damages physical structures in your brain that are responsible for you know, ec executive function, which is sort of like looking, f looking forward, planning, executing those plans, those kinds of things. So yeah. what we ended up doing in this randomized controlled trial was building in uh, an executive function piece where we try to provide workarounds for the neurological damage that's been done by this stress so that people will have an easier time, you know, getting the initiative to get a job and keeping that job and controlling emotions when they're on the job, those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the bottom line here is that, you know, healthcare is not just about, you know, having some sort of insurance uh, for, you know, physical issues that you might encounter, but it's really sort of treating the patient holistically, right? Holistically is not the right term, but really understanding where the patient is coming from and what the, what the impacts could be uh, from a stress perspective, from, you know, all the, all the stress factors the patient might be encountering. And, you know, this has more relevance now and we'll talk a bit about that in the context of COVID mm -hmm. as well uh, but, but before we get to it Peter I want to touch on a paper um, it's uh, the cost effectiveness analysis of the new rural cooperative medical scheme in China and this new rural cooperative medical scheme NCMS is a universal healthcare coverage plan now covering over 98% of rural residents in China, first implemented in 2003. And rising costs in the face of modest gains in health and financial protections have raised questions about the cost effectiveness of the NCMS. So, so you did an analysis around this. What did you find? Um, well, uh... What we found is actually uh, in, in flux as we're speaking. Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I, I'm not sure that the findings would still apply uh, today because um, uh, when the study was done, uh, the, the NCMS had just been uh, sort of rolled out. Mm. And the way that it was rolled out is, you know, China likes to do things, uh, make their policies experimental. They even decided to convert over to capitalism experimentally, which is really cool, by yeah. creating, you know, different zones that become capitalists are called special economic zones and different zones that don't, uh, and then compare those two. And, and that was sort of the impetus behind uh, the new rural medical cooperative system, because uh, they wanted to see, well, if we did things slightly differently from one geographic area to the next um, you know, can we sort of find a better model? Hmm. You know, can we see what's working better than others? Um, and so, uh, in that, in the interim time that the, the program has, has changed quite a bit. Um, hmm. so, so we, we, we were finding that, you know, some, some providence provinces weren't doing such a great job and others were. Customize it to various regions. It, it, it works a lot better. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, when, when we first did the analysis, we found that it wasn't providing uh, great value rolling out this, this, uh, this program on, on average. But now it's, it's been tweaked and um, they're 
finding value in the different, you know, the different pieces of the, uh, of the uh, uh, health insurance scheme that are working. And so I think it is working better. The other, the other sort of interesting thing that they've done is they've realized that you cannot just pay for half of somebody's medical bill. You really need to pay for at least 80% of their medical bill for it to work. Mm. Um, and so that's what they're doing now. It's funny, this, you know, this study was published only two years ago, but things move so quickly in China that, um, that the conclusions of a paper <laughs> can, be, <laughs> can be nullified in just two years. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's a large country. Um, what, is the, what is the population of uh, the rural population in China? Uh, well, now it is, uh, it is less than 50% of the um, 1.3 billion people in the country. Um, so it's increasingly small. Uh, yeah, and it's but still, still about six hundred million or so. Yeah, six hundred million. You know, that's twice our population, and um, and and they they effectively have universal health care for that six hundred million. Yes. Yeah. So so I don't know if any country uh, has implemented anything like that at this scale, right? I know that India is nowhere near from a universal health care coverage perspective. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, that's really a, a state by state thing. Kerala is, has done a great job, um, but uh, other states not so much. Right, right. So it's a good experiment to, to keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump into one of your recent papers, uh, the promise of big data for precision population health management in the U.S., you say, uh, you know, the objectives were as we enter the year 2020, health data in the United States is still in the process of being curated into a usable format uh, with coordinated data systems. It becomes possible to answer with relative certainty what preventative and medical interventions work in the real world and for whom they might work. And this has always been a problem for us, right? I mean, you think about EMR data, for example, there are something like 400 different EMR vendors. Um, many of those systems are designed by engineers without a good understanding of the workflow uh, in, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And they all use different terminology. Yep. Uh, and so... And so, so yeah, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, what you what you found and what your um, suggestions are. Well, um, what, what we found is that the, uh, the that it's a disaster. And we, we've kind of known that for a long time. Uh, uh, when Obama became president, he allocated, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, $20 billion to standardizing uh, electronic medical records so that they could talk to each other. Hmm. And um, we haven't made a whole lot of great progress <laughs> on that. Um, we've made progress, but not the kind of progress that you would have, have expected to make over $20 billion in 12 years. Yeah. Um, and it, the end result of this is that it's, it's difficult to use these data for research purposes. It's difficult hmm. to use these data for healthcare purposes. You know, so in, in other countries, almost any other wealthy country in the world, uh, if you go to another doctor in another state, they can just pull up your medical records using, mm -hmm. um, you know, highly secure uh, ID card, uh, med health, health card, or uh, in some cases, even biometrically linked data to pull up your, your medical data securely. Here, um, irrespective of the security, <laughs> it's in a completely different format and a completely different uh, silo and a completely different system. So what, what happens is you go to doctor number two and then they have to just do all the same tests all over again, you know, repeat the MRI, repeat that. Right. And so um, that is very inefficient. And then from a medical standpoint, you know, there is so much that we can learn from all of the variations in the way that medical care is, is, uh, is delivered and um, uh, so, much, so much that we can learn in terms of um, where uh, diseases, you know, like rare diseases, uh, 
you know, the treatments that, that, that we've been trying on them, whether they're not yeah. work, um, there's, there's just a whole universe of things that can be learned. And uh, in, uh, if I could, I could, I could just sort of mention two counterfactual examples. Um, sure. In, yeah. You know, there's, there's a much more uti- utopic world that's, <laughs> that people <laughs> are living in. Um, the, the best example is probably Estonia. And, and in Estonia, everybody has what's called a digital ID. And I know mm. they're, they're trying to do this in India and other places as well. And the idea behind a digital ID is that all of your data, not just your health data, but all of your data, which is all really useful for researchers, um, is put into one database. So in Estonia, if you want to open a business, you can do it in a second because mm-hmm. uh, they know what your credit history is, um, so you can get your loan. They know um, who your workers are because each of those people are, are linked to your you know, ID. Yeah. Um, and you have all the data on them. So if you're opening a restaurant, you know, you know, have they been certified in food handling? Um, so it, it's instantaneous to, to, to open a business there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can vote online. Uh, you can register for your, your DMV in, in, you know, in under a minute, if you can imagine mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, because they just have all the information that they need about you. Now, from, um, from a research standpoint, that is really useful because you have all this information over time. So you, you know, the progression of disease, uh, you know, what treatment they've received. And, and if, if you, if you sort of want to go back to the, the conversation we had earlier for one second, yeah. um, you also know what, whether or not these treatments are working. So in the Oregon health insurance experiment, um, the, the politics aside, there was a valid research uh, quandary that came up when they found that treating diabetes and treating hypercholesterolemia and treating blood pressure didn't really have an impact on your, your mm-hmm. blood sugar or your blood pressure or your you know, blood cholesterol. Um, and, and one of the reasons is probably that uh, you know, people are, have a hard time taking these medicines consistently yeah, um, the medicines are probably a little bit less effective than they than they seem in these clinical trials. Right, and uh, there is a really valid question um, that people are asking, which is, you know, if you if if your doctor diagnoses you with with high blood pressure or high blood cholesterol, um, does taking the medication on average help you or harm you? Uh, <laughs> you know, because you. Yeah. You need to treat 200 people to reduce, uh, to, to prevent one heart attack. Right. Um, so, so going back to Estonia, you know, you have that data. So you can answer that data immediately. You can answer that question immediately. You know, this medicine should or should not be taken. Yeah. And then, you know, you can take the next step. Um, you know, that 200 people, you might find 10 or 20 who would benefit from uh, blood pressure medication a great deal and other one 180 may not mm-hmm. right so you know we've been talking about personalized medicine forever manufacturers don't really have an incentive to go there because their business model is based on one dose for all mm-hmm. uh you know <laughs> high-scale manufacturing um and and so providers have moved a little bit in that direction. So we have AI systems now in a provider setting that could predict uh, who is going to progress into hypertension or type 2 diabetes and post-medication who is likely to improve on them. And this is just based on, you know, that clinics or that network of clinics data because we cannot go outside that because of the right. non-standardization. Right, it's a small amount of data, but even with that data, we can show that you know there is very, very usable information in there. And so, so going back to the Estonia case, you know, the argument Peter always comes back is that okay, if it's that transparent, if that's accessible, then it could also be utilized um, negatively by people, right, for for other nefarious reasons. That's correct. Yeah, and um, so that's where these other case, the the other case I mentioned would would come in. Um, so 
you know, in Estonia, you really have a secure system. And, and the reason why the system is so secure is because they're on the border of Russia. Uh, they're frequently subject to cyber attacks um, yeah. by Russia. And uh, so their information is biometrically linked and it's, uh, you know, the most secure system you could possibly imagine. Um, in other countries, uh, you don't necessarily have that level of security. Um, mm. And uh, these, these systems are lauded, uh, you know, like so, so Taiwan has a very similar system in which um, you can just go to any doctor you want in Taiwan with your health card and uh, just show up and the doctor takes your card, they have your whole medical history um, and uh, they can address your problem very rapidly and effectively and they can use predictive uh, analytics. Uh, they don't yeah. think they use AI, but predictive analytics are probably at least as effective uh, to figure out you know, who's gonna benefit most from which treatments. And another sort of interesting piece of that system is that if the doctor does the wrong thing, if this particular treatment isn't merited in this particular patient, the doctor's pay can get docked. Mm. Um, so they have great data. But because they're not really um, facing the same kind of threats that Estonia faces, uh, one could imagine that a bad actor could come into that system uh, mm a little bit more easily because it's it's not the same sort of high level biometrically linked system right right yeah i mean i i wonder peter you know it's because we have all this different legacy systems and legacy data flow in the us uh you know is it even possible for us now um, to, to standardize it, you know. Sometimes when you start with a blank sheet of paper, when you don't have anything, it's easy to leapfrog, you know, to something yeah. that actually works. Uh, but in our situation now, we are in, in a, such a muddled up, you know, data situation. I wonder if it's even possible to standardize it anymore. Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly impossible to do it well. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, uh, a, a big company like Google, when with Google Health 1.0, they really they really missed a, a great opportunity because uh, this was you know back in 2010. Um, they had they they were trying to decide you know should we build an EMR and just hand it out for free, hmm. uh, you know to anybody who wants it, and then we can use these data uh, you know for for, <laughs> for our research purposes right. and profit. Uh, if they had done that, I think um, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today. Uh, uh, I think the best that we can sort of hope for in America, sadly, in the current system, without universal health care um, that, that sort of mandates that every provider use the same system. Right. Um, without, you know, in the absence of that, the best we can hope for is uh these systems, they, they have names like Rios, um, where they're sort of different systems communicate with each other on the back end and just sort of feed data into, into a data file um, that yeah. can kind of be used. And um, with really resourceful researchers uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of time, you can do something useful with it. But it's, it's really uh, sad that we don't, we don't have it easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it seems like uh, the technology is not the issue, right? I mean, EMR systems are basically databases with uh, user interfaces on them. Uh, so it's not rocket science. The problem is um, that the standardization aspect of it has to be really from the healthcare perspective, not from a technology perspective. And so that's where leadership has been lacking, right? Um, you know, it may not be Google per se, but it might be a consortium, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some sort of a healthcare consortium uh, that could set out to solve this problem. It's a, it's a very solvable problem, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has, like you say in the paper, a tremendous amount of value for society. Um, I want to jump into another paper, uh, Peter. This, this uh, was sort of um, uh, puzzling for me. So, 
uh, spatio-temporal variation of the association between urbanicity, urbanicity and incident of hypertension among Chinese adults. So uh, essentially, you know, what you think about, uh, generally speaking, when you, when you have an urban society, you tend to have all these problems, including hypertension, that that would be your sort of ingoing hypothesis, right? And, and you find something different. Right. Yeah, yeah. This this was a bit of a surprising uh, uh, paper at first, uh, and 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 uh, after we thought about it for a while, it started to make more sense. So, what what we found was that um, as different regions of China developed mm-hmm. at different paces economically, um, we saw different trajectories of blood pressure. So. Mm-hmm. You know, like one, one way you can sort of think about blood pressure in a rapidly industrializing nation is, yeah. um, you know, well, people are starting to eat fast food and getting stressed out and uh, working more <laughs> long hours and, and not doing manual labor. And so their blood pressure is going up. Mm. Um, but another way you can think about it is uh, some people are getting access to a great deal of economic opportunity um, that's improving their quality of life mm-hmm. uh, in ways that it's not for others. And um, that, that second narrative, I think, is, is probably the right one. Uh, so what, what we found was that, that cities like, like Shanghai, uh, Beijing, Hangzhou, Hangzhou is where Alibaba is, the big tech company corridors, um, those places were doing pretty well. And, and if you look at in terms of uh, reducing uh, blood pressure over time, whereas, you know, you would have expected that maybe it would have gotten worse. Um, mm-hmm. Relative to the third tier cities and second tier, tier cities, uh, you know, like in Hebei and in uh, Guizhou and other parts of China, those, those places did pretty 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 badly as, uh, as economic development progressed. But if you mm-hmm. look at the lifestyle of somebody in Shanghai um, relative to these other places, uh, you know, the, the kids are getting uh, a really high quality education. They have some of the best schools in the world. Uh, and the adults are going to gyms. Uh, they're, they're shopping at organic supermarkets. Uh, Etc. Whereas in these uh, second and third tier cities, you know there there are no organic supermarkets. People don't have the resources for that. Um, they're stressed out uh, and uh, they're driving cars and things like that. But they mm-hmm. they uh, they don't really have access to the sort of um, first world amenities you could say that um, the people in in the first tier cities have. Oh, that's interesting. So it's almost like there's some kind of a threshold economics uh, beyond which things improve. Um, but when you when you urbanize something uh, and that urban center hasn't really reached the economics, you know, in, in terms of services and the general um, stage of economics for that city, then you you see all those problems that we tend to expect in a city. Yep, I think that's right. Okay, okay. Um, you have a, a another paper. So this is uh, looking at New York, and you're looking at health effects of expanding the earned income tax credit. Um, so you say anti-poverty policies may hold promise as tools to improve health and reduce mortality rates among low, low-income Americans. Uh, we examined the health effects of New York City Paycheck Plus randomized control trial and the Paycheck Plus test, uh, the impact of potential four-fold increase in the earned income tax credit for low-income Americans without dependent children. So um, it, this is, again, so in a sort of the... Um, getting to a minimum level of economics that that seemed to make a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go, could we talk a bit about that paper? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, 
so this 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 kind of goes back to the the first uh, discussion that we had, which is, uh, you know, when you when you when you provide uh, resources to people that have been deprived of them, you know, uh, that we were talking before about uh, the loss of labor jobs, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and how the 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 standard of living has declined for a lot of uh, working class Americans. Um, the real question is, you know can you provide policies that will sort of take place of the benefits that, that people had under these jobs, like health mm -hmm. insurance um, or, or income supplementation. And in this case, we're, we're really just talking about income supplementation. So in this randomized controlled trial, uh, what happened was uh, one group received just regular earned income tax credit benefits, which is a federal program uh, that supplements your income if you are earning low wages and uh, you know you're working at McDonald's, um, but you're working and you can't make ends meet um, at tax time. They give you money back. Yeah. Uh, and so we asked the question: Well, what happens if we quadruple that? And what happens if we say, uh, well, you know, you can earn more money? Um, than under the standard EITC and still get money back. Uh, and so 500, 500 to 2,000. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So about going from about 500 at tax time to about 2,000 at tax time. And uh, we found that men um, don't really respond to these kinds of incentives in the same way that, that women do. Mm. Um, and uh, But... Um, you know, they do respond a little bit and uh, the, the subsequent effects of that. So we did, we looked at two things uh, in two different papers. Um, one, one, we looked at the mental health impacts and one, we looked at the um, physical health impacts. In both cases, we found that, uh, that women tended to respond to these incentives. They got more money back. They worked more um, and uh, had better mental health and physical health outcomes uh, in the treatment group than in the control group. So, you know, the net takeaway message is that these programs seem to help and they do seem to work. Um, but we still have some challenges ahead of us in trying to figure out, uh, you know, what's going on with the people that, that don't take money, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's handed to them. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a complex incentive, right, Peter? So uh, you have to sort of look forward. Uh, the 2000 is coming to you during tax time, isn't it? Right. And so, you know, you have to anticipate and you have to actually do a bit of a calculation to see yeah. what, what the net impact is going to be uh, for you. Right. And uh, what you're suggesting is that lazy men maybe not even <laughs> <laughs> not even able to do that. Uh, and, and that is one reason, you know, uh, people sort of favor now the the basic uh, minimum income uh, policy, uh, which is, you know, basically saying, you know, let, let's let's uh, really say there is a basic income that everybody gets. It's very easy to internalize. It's very easy to plan around. And uh, and I, I think um, Denmark or some other country in Scandinavia actually implemented it, right, already? Yes. And uh, do we have any data as to how that program is working? Uh, yeah. So there's, there's, um, there's data from uh, various, uh, various programs. So uh, a Silicon Y Combinator ran an experiment. Um, uh, Finland ran uh, their experiment in Denmark. Um, in in all cases, they it seems to improve well-being, um, but uh, doesn't really seem to have much uh, much impact on much measurable impact on um, other things. Uh, you know, like do they do they? What one hypothesis was? You know, you have this free time off. You're gonna take this money and start a company and, uh, you know, do great things for society. That doesn't seem to be happening. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's probably too high an expectation, right? Um, you know, so, so the, <laughs> the macro idea here was, yeah, if we get into artificial intelligence, robotics, 
many of the routine jobs humans used to do will disappear. Right. So we're going to have a large number of humans who, um, you know, who who don't have the jobs they used to do, and they may have interests in other things, not necessarily, you know, start a company or anything like. They may have interest in, uh, I don't know, art or literature, um, sort of, you know, improving uh, themselves. Right. Uh, was I think the general principle. Um, right. I, I don't know if we can really expect, uh, you know, that the money is going to come back into some some sort of societal investment, I wonder. Right, right. But, uh, you know, I don't think we really have the data yet, but um, uh, it seems on first blush that we might not be expecting people to be uh, um, writing books and things like that with all their free time either. <laughs> But it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, I think I think it's really early. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what <clears throat> you know what happens. Yeah. Um, one thing that strikes me about these programs, though, is the you know the the extreme cost of them. <clears throat> you know, uh, if we're talking about you know in in the United States, we're talking about three hundred and thirty million people. Uh, if you give if, if you give every you know, man, woman, and child, some money, mm-hmm. uh, you're talking about uh, a multiplier of 330 million. Um, and very quickly, you run into the trillions of dollars. Right. So uh, that that's not really, that's not really viable, even from the sil- from the standpoint of these Silicon Valley firms, if you tax them at 50% or something like that, uh, we wouldn't see that kind of revenue. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, like you say, I think we need more data. You know, the one issue is because we have at least this anticipated discontinuity in artificial intelligence and robotics, um, you know, companies may not deploy these technologies because they have employees. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a vicious circle because they, these companies will operate inefficiently um, because they have humans. Right. Uh, and these are jobs that humans don't really like to do and they have to do, right? right. And so I think social welfare and efficiency uh, have to be measured, right? Um, uh, you know, I don't know if you have the answers yet, but I, I think it, it's much more complex societal question. Uh, it, it's almost like a societal organization question. That's right. I think that's right. And it's it's much more, you know, easy to sort of pull off in a command and control economy um, like you have in China or even a semi-authoritarian regime like, you know, like Singapore, which has a democracy, but one party system or Japan, Um, you know, in all of these cases, um, eh, yeah, you, 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 you run into issues. Current issues, and it's going to be culture dependent too. So I don't think there is, you know, uh, something that fits for everybody. And so if this were a policy choice for different countries, they have to really look at their economy, uh, their culture, and determine what might be optimum. That's right. I think that's right. And, you know, it's sort of interesting to see how... um how COVID has, has, has shined a light on, on this issue because it, it really, you know, marriages weren't happening. Uh, mm. Things weren't getting processed. Uh, businesses weren't getting opened because all that stuff was done in person and it had to be automated. Um, uh, you know, it, it could have been that many of these firms, you know, like KPMG or, you know, even university offices, uh, could have been done remotely, you know, 10 yeah. years ago. Uh, right, and right. Now, we're, now we're doing it. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and, and what, we're, what we're finding is that um, this sort of forced accelerated automation yeah. um, is producing, you know, sort of predictable effects. Uh, so s- some, some places are falling apart and other places are thriving. Mm. Uh, I, I know I can say in our, in our academic department, things have, uh, things have changed a lot because people are, are no longer working <laughs> nine to five. They're now working, you know, longer hours. Uh, mm. 
hmm. which you know has good and bad. But uh, in terms of the contracts and payment processing and things like that, the system has completely collapsed. So hmm. we used to be able to pay our our research partners in a few days, and now it takes you know a month or two. Hmm. That might be sort of transition difficulties, though, right, Peter? I mean, yeah, these are fixable problems. It's just that we were hit with a with a shock. That's and the that's correct. Not, yeah, set for yeah. it. Yeah, but you also have to think about uh, the you know the precision uh, medicine part of it. <laughs> it. You know, which is that there's there's also an interaction here with with personality. You know, some some people yeah. work really well from home, and some people don't. Right. Uh, if you have some people that don't in a system that is completely virtual, you're going to have, uh, you know, some some big problems. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the the large companies, they hire, their hiring policies are based on set of assumptions, how they operate. And then one day you say you're going to operate differently, uh, but they have an employee pool that, that they hired, uh, promoted, and so on. And their expectations are very different. So uh, it will be interesting. This might be a, an interesting trial, uh, Peter. You know, you can look at like high-tech companies, how they transition, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to more conventional companies, how they transition, right? Yeah. I, my, my guess is that high-tech companies will, won't have a big problem transitioning into this, this process. Yeah, although you you do have to wonder uh, the extent to which um, people were meeting over ping pong or writing their Google <laughs> before and yeah. uh, and saying, "Hey, uh, you know, I've got this idea." So, you know, the the whole idea behind the cat paper, the artificial intelligence, uh, could actually be done. Um, uh, if I remember the story correct correctly, it was uh, in the Google cafeteria uh, mm. where they came up with Google Brain and. Uh, Maybe that wouldn't have happened if they were if they were working online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's hope uh, let's hope we find other ways to interact. I want to talk a bit about your paper, uh, COVID nineteen, anxiety and distress among the first community quarantined in the U.S. due to COVID nineteen, uh, psychological implications uh, for the unfolding crisis. You want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Yeah, so uh, that was that was an accidental data find. Um, yeah, a, there's a there's a English company. You know, when 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 COVID first sort of sp- spilled over into into Europe, um, everybody's sort of in in panic mode and like, oh, I want to help and contribute. Uh, and so uh, at the time, uh, symptom trackers became. Uh, kind of popular. Um, so this English company made a symptom tracker that basically asked people to self-report their symptoms. Hmm. So uh, they they asked me uh, what kinds of data they should collect, and I suggested that they add a um, a measure of depression to it to see what's yeah. happening to people when they're, you know, quarantined. And uh, that provided a really interesting experiment because you could look at the differences between people who had tested positive and the people who had... Um, quarantined, you know, without testing positive or who had symptoms. And uh, we found that people who were uh, quarantined with a positive test were much, much, much more likely to have uh, symptoms of depression than those mm. who had a negative test. So mm. they, you can imagine they were sort of feeling uh, isolated and alone and wondering if they were going to die. And Right. Yeah, so so it will be interesting to look at how things might have changed over time. Um, at the beginning, uh, the uncertainty and the lack of information would have actually compounded this issue, I would imagine. Uh, yeah. I don't know if things have improved or not, but we at least have more information now. We we do, you know, but but one of having having been um, sort of thrust into this world of COVID like every other academic. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, one thing that strikes me is how little we still know. I, I mean, I think, mm. I think that there was a, there was a panic um, and there was a belief that, you know, we're all going to die at first. Uh, <laughs> and then that sort of gave way to, uh, well, you know, this is 
it's old people that are really going to be impacted by this. But I don't think we really know that much about the disease yet. I think, uh, you know, even scientists succumb to the temptation to feel like they have an answer um, when we really don't. And we're still learning a lot uh, about this disease. You know, uh, there's there's at least some evidence now that, that young people are having, uh, are experiencing permanent uh, myocardial damage. Um, right other organ damage and chronic chronic symptomatology even if they're asymptomatic so you know this could be destroying a generation or it might not you know we just don't know yeah i mean it is the the disease burden we don't have any data to really compute the disease burden for covid right so amazing isn't that amazing i mean it's it's yeah it's already september (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, also the long term, you know, like you say, the long term effects, right? So the, yeah. the 1918, uh, 19 Spanish flu, uh, it appears that, you know, a million people who actually recovered from that uh, Spanish flu uh, had Parkinson's disease 10 years later. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we can determine or, uh, or speculate on sort of the tactical effects of COVID. Uh, some of it we can see. Uh, but we have no clue, right, um, right. You know, what the long-term effects are going to be. Uh, but I was told, Peter, that uh, the vaccine is going to arrive on November 2nd, which is, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, which is encouraging. Um, yeah, that is encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to um, close with uh, a, a different topic, Um not necessarily different, but uh, so health and economic consequences of applying the United States PM 2.5 automobile emission standards to other nations, uh-huh. a case study of France and Italy. Uh-huh. Um, and so you say the U.S. was you know, among the world's strictest automobile emission standards. It's now loosening them. It is unclear where a nation should draw the line between the associated cost burden imposed by regulations and the broader societal benefits associated with having cleaner air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk a bit about what you found and you know what the implications might be? Yeah, um, and, and and this is uh, this is not a politically driven study. You know, this this is a this is a question that is uh, you know I think really of critical um, policy significance. It's 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 not a question of uh, you know. Oh, we just need to put catalytic converters on every car and, uh, you know, implement as many safety features as we possibly can and and uh, put speed cameras everywhere. You know, there's a there's a real cost to all of these things that we do. And the question is, uh, you know, where do we draw the line at any point in time and and how do we move that line over time? And and, and in this case, um, you know, in the United States, you know, in in the 1990s, Los Angeles had pink, orangish colored air because there were so many many admissions from from automobiles, and you could see that all the way up the coast to Santa Barbara. Um, they got it back last week, but from the fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is a lot of unintended consequences, right? Uh, yeah. This, um, <laughs> this made it easier. To, maybe these regulations. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, made made cars more viable and increased global warming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is exactly the the, the thing. So um, yeah, so what we found in that particular study was that uh, countries that that uh, hadn't taken such an aggressive stance towards uh, pollution control measures on their automobiles. Uh, paid a price for it, and hmm. uh, they paid not just a price in terms of, uh, you know, lung disease and heart disease, um, premature mortality, but they also uh, paid a price economically for that, hmm. uh, because especially in these countries with, uh, you know, nationalized healthcare systems, um, you know, it's basically uh, the the regulatory costs could have been paid for by the government almost, um, and just given they could have just given the money to the automobile industry, and they they might they may have recuperated a lot of it in their health system. Wow! Yeah, and and so the metric here is uh, quality adjusted life years, right? Yeah. And um, I mean, the numbers may not make intuitive sense, but essentially, what we are what what you're saying here is. 
um, that those those stricter standards uh, obviously result in uh, higher quality uh, air and environment, and that reduces uh, diseases and increases uh, essentially the quality uh, of life and the total quality adjusted life years of all uh, all people. Correct. That's right. And and these studies were done. Um... Uh, in the most uh, restrictive and conservative ways possible. So we didn't really look at spillover effects uh, too much into factors like economic productivity when somebody's, you know, uh, uh, partially debilitated by chronic lung disease, for example. Right, right. Yeah, and the other spillover effects here, which is to be difficult to measure, but I yeah. think it's significant, is the innovation aspect. So suppose I take a system and I say, mm. you have to go from mm. yeah. zero to, you know, 10 to zero mm. in a matter of six months. Mm-hmm. Um, people will figure that out, mm-hmm. how to do it. It's and amazing. Along with yeah. It, yeah, along with it will come a ton of innovation, right? Yeah, that's and right. So, yeah, I, I wonder, you know, all these policy choices uh, that we look at, we sort of measure, you know, kind of the immediate tactical cost and benefit and say, well, it's too expensive. Um, maybe there is some way to, you know, sort of look at in a more standardized way what policy choices actually bring. Uh, you know, many of mm-hmm. the choices, as you say, result in some sort of a health angle. Yeah. And once it does that, you know, <laughs> all the numbers are out of the window because we are spending $4 trillion dollars Right. Healthcare today. Right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that is, um, I- especially in the United States, the math ends up pretty easy uh, in in these <laughs> in these studies because you don't have to add all of these unintended consequences and nuances because you get your answer without adding those. In 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 other words, um, even when you don't look at, you know, for example, uh, uh, catalytic converters. Uh, as you're saying, drive innovation. If if you're telling people, if you're telling automobile companies they have to reduce uh, uh, emissions, um, you know you, what you're going to do is you're going to encourage uh, people to go into material sciences, and the material yeah. scientists are going to do other things like invent new um, silicon uh, alternatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all these spillover effects. But you don't really have to worry about it in the U.S. because our healthcare costs are so big. You can just <laughs> look at healthcare costs in these analyses, and that's that. You're done. Yeah, and the other question in this policy choice is also would be sort of the timing, right? So sometimes um, I- I'm just speculating here. Uh, you know, suppose I have a policy that says you have to reduce emissions to zero. In other words, you cannot have an you know a, a gas-driven automobile anymore. A very harsh policy uh, choice. Um, it's going to have a tremendous benefit because right now, when you have electric cars mixed with gas-powered cars, you can only get to certain efficiency, right? You know, mm-hmm. you cannot get to full autonomous, uh, and mm-hmm. so you have to sort of pull back on innovation because you have legacy drag, so to speak, Perfect. on the road, right? So sometimes, you know, a, a big policy change might be a, a much better way to, to tackle something like that. Yeah, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we're really seeing uh, nations like, like China leapfrog uh, other nations is because, you know, they, they have the ability to sort of say, uh, okay, well, we're going to put standardize what a charging station looks like and put star- charging stations everywhere uh, and, uh, you know, and incentivize the development of electric vehicles. Um, and if if you go to the, you know, if you spend any time in a major Chinese city, it's, it's really remarkable because um, if you stand on a street corner of uh, five, li- you know, of a five lanes on either side, uh, you know, third ring road, yeah, silent, because all the cars that are moving around are uh, are electric, and, mm. and as you say, um, just having those electric cars on the road is is going to be driving innovation because all of those manufacturers are competing for who can make the most efficient battery, who can make the most autonomous systems, 
et cetera. Uh, and that's one of the big reasons why Tesla moved really quickly into that market. Right, right. Yeah, so a lot of, uh, lot of challenges in front of us that, uh, that makes your, uh, your research always interesting. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this, this has been great, Peter. Yeah, yeah it was a really so great much. conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, yeah, good luck with all your research. Okay, thank you thank so you. much. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.